and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. So this week, we're listening to an interview that Tom Lutz did with Walter Mosley at a LARB luminary dinner. That's right. We awarded Walter Mosley with a Lifetime Achievement Award this past weekend. In honor of his award, uh, we had Tom talk to him. And Walter Mosley, of course, is a legendary noir and fiction writer. He's published over 50 books. Wow. Probably the most famous of those is Devil in a Blue Dress. Walter Mosley has also had two books come out this year, Elements of Fiction and Trouble is What I Do. So he's a very, very prolific writer. And his detective is Easy Rollins. Is yes, that right? that's right. But it's not all the books he's written star easy. No. So he's, he started a number of different series with different detectives, different stories, and many, many different characters. And he's a, as listeners will hear, he's a really funny, charming, interesting guy to listen to. He's been around for a long time, and he's been writing for a long time, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about both of those things. Wow. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, me too. Let's listen. Let's do it. Walter Mosley, of course, needs no introduction, but it's my job to give him one, so I'm going to do that. He is, of course, the winner of numerous other awards besides the LARB Lifetime Achievement Award. He's a grandmaster, most recently, of the Mystery Writers of America, which is the highest award in that field, Edgar Award for Best Novel, the Ainsfield Wolf Award, the Grammy, Penn USA's Lifetime Achievement Award, several NAACP Image Awards, and also, very recently, the Jonathan Kirsch Award from the LA Times, which will be awarded next month in April. But this is the best one of the awards, right? At least tonight. <laughs> he is the author of some 50-plus books, a number of plays. He's worked on a number of television shows and on film. He is an incredibly prolific writer in a number of different genres. And I'm going to try to talk about each of the 56 books tonight before we're done, kind of one at a time. But if we don't get to them all, we'll pick it up later. Ladies and gentlemen, Walter Mosley. So I want to talk about four kind of overlapping categories, big categories, fiction, nonfiction, philosophy, history. Okay. Okay? Maybe not necessarily in that order, but... And I think that they're in all sorts of ways. The lifetime of work is engaged in all four of those things all the way through. The first two categories just kind of describe where your books are shelved in the bookstore, right? That is fiction and nonfiction. The fiction books include 14 Easy Rollins books, six Leonid McGill books. Now, right, this is the sixth, that's, so, right, yeah. that's just come out. Yeah. Another 26 works of fiction, some of which, like John Woman, one of your most recent, who, that I want to talk about a fair amount tonight, and Debbie Doesn't Do It Anymore, and Last Days of Ptolemy Gray. There are more or less realist novels. Others, mm -hmm. like Fearless Jones, and many others are clearly crime novels. And of course, it struck me as I was putting this introduction together, that, is there a novel that's not a crime novel? Not just of yours, in but in world, general? In the world, in existence? Yeah. Uh, 
Unless it's really bad. No. <laughs> right, yeah, I think that's There's right. a couple of novels that are so bad that they aren't crime novels. <laughs> Even in the crime genre. <laughs> but, I mean, really, we're humans. We're semi-social creatures, which means, you know, there's always conflict and there's always rules being broken. And then there's a whole series of novels that are, in, that are shelved a little bit differently. And I don't know if you call that speculative fiction. I write science fiction. You know, I don't like, I mean, some things are actually speculative, but you know, I mean, it's such a, it's like a comic book artist saying I did a graphic novel. You know, Batman number 409, that graphic novel. But no, it's a comic book. You know, I mean, you should call it a thing what it is. I love science fiction. I think that for black people, science fiction is absolutely necessary. You see somebody like Lucas doing Star Wars. If you watch the first Star Wars, not only is every person who's a person white, most of them are blonde and most of them have blue eyes. I mean, it's amazing. I don't think he did it on purpose. I hope not. You know, his wife would be upset. But, but the thing is that it's our job to make sure that we exist in the future, right? And, you know, part of that is having children. But another part of that is to imagine ourselves in a world beyond the world that we're in. So yeah, I write science fiction. I think like 13 books. And the Tempest Landry books, are those science fiction? Well, Tempest Landry, I started to write the Tempest Landry books and that came out of the simple stories of Langston Hughes, you know. Mm. It was very interesting. I mean, I don't know, I'm not like, you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm not sure if anybody else is a scholar, but I know that I'm not. And, you know, when you read the simple stories, the interlocutor, the person asking the questions, you know, it's actually Langston Hughes. But he doesn't have a life, partly because Langston wasn't sharing his life with the world. And so he would have had to make up who he was in order to be that interlocutor. And so I decided I would write a thing about a guy who, you know, who dies, he goes to, you know, to the place of decision. They say, go to hell. He says, no, I'm not. Turns out he doesn't have to because of free will. So he comes back to earth with an angel. And so the angel, who is the interlocutor, but he keeps on trying to convince him that he's evil and Tempest keeps on trying to trick him, much in the same way the simple does. So there are moments of it that are, you know, meta, but I wouldn't call it science fiction because that meta stuff doesn't matter at all in the story. What matters is the dialogue between these two men. And then there's the nonfiction, which is a couple of books about writing, books on politics, books on culture and history. And again, these are all places where they're shelved in the bookstore and in the library. For you, are they all part of the same project? Every time you say they're, where they're shelved in the bookstore, I, I always think the fifth or sixth book I wrote was R.L.'s Dream, which is, you know, straightforward blues novel. I mean, straightforward blues novel. There's a crime, of course, but all novels have crimes. And so I went into a bookstore, you know, I guess it was a Barnes & Noble at that time. I went to Barnes & Noble and I said, I looked for the book, you know, in literary fiction. I'm looking, 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 not there. So I go to a guy and I said, look, I'm looking for this book. I can't find it. It's called R.L.'s Dream. And he says, well, who wrote it? And I said, Walter Mosley wrote it. And he said, oh, well, that's a mystery. <laughs> and I said, but it's not a mystery. And he said, oh, everything Walter Mosley writes is a mystery. <laughs> I just, you know, I went, oh, okay, you know, and I left. I already had a copy, so I didn't need to buy it. But I just wanted to make sure it was there, and it was there as a mystery. You know, New York Times doesn't really do any of my books that are not mysteries, and they're mysteries, they do them in the roundup. And one year, like, you know, one of my books, I forget which book it was, but it definitely was not a mystery. I think it was Last Days of Ptolemy Gray. Mm -hmm. And not only was it reviewed in mystery, it won the award as the best mystery of the year. <laughs> I'm like, 
but it's not a mystery at all, you know? It's just that she was nice wanting to, you know, cover my book. I don't know. So they're all in the same place, but they might end up in different places. It's very rare that they put me in black literature. I always go, because, you know, Toni Morrison's always there. I should be, you know, right after Toni, right? And I'm never there. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's the one. I'm not there. What happened? She's black. Can I be black too? <laughs> no, you're a mystery writer. Yeah. But is it all of a piece for you? I mean, the thing I noticed as I was kind of going through my notes, because we talked before, mm. I've been able to interview you before, and so I was looking at my old notes and at the things I've read in the meantime and the notes I took on those, and some of the things that keep coming up in the work, I mean, you are interested in philosophy, in a whole mm. series of kinds of philosophy, right? Moral philosophy, epistemology, ontology. You're interested in a lot of philosophical topics, and the relationship between philosophy and history. And that, it shows up in all of the different books. It shows up in the nonfiction books, it shows up in the mysteries, it shows up in the science fiction, maybe even more obviously. So it seems like you're kind of working through the same theme, same concerns, same understandings in these different genres. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's true. Good, I thought so. Yeah. Wow, yes, that's true. You know, I, I was thinking, Really, it's a while ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, probably 15. I was, I was at NYU, my friend Monthea Diawara, who's an Africana Studies program there, and, and we're going to go have lunch. And we were just about to leave, but then there's this little guy, you know, with brown eyes and brown hair, you know, what they call a white guy. I don't believe in the existence of white people. So I have to talk to this man. He's a friend from Paris, you know. And they start speaking French and da da da. And then, at one point, I said, come on over. And then, you know, the guy started speaking English. Monty was speaking English. And, you know, he was saying things like, you know, I met this very good, nice woman, and tonight I think I'm going to go with her to Long Island, and we're going to have a good time. <laughs> and, you know, I need money. I'm not getting enough money. I need money, you know. And it's like, it's just talking. It's women. It's money. And he was a nice guy. And then he left. And Monty and I started walking away. And I said, Monty, who was that? And he says, oh, he's a friend of mine from Paris. He's Derrida. <laughs> and I went, what? I didn't even think he was a real person. If you read his work, it doesn't sound like a real person wrote them. And, but you know, I was so moved by that. Now, on the other hand, I was, you know, there's a fellow here tonight who I met with, Derek Walcott, some years ago. And I lived in a, this is the opposite. I'm living in this building, the archive building, and one of the people who lived in the building was Monica Lewinsky. You know, so Monica Lewinsky walks by, and she's a very friendly, very outgoing, loud person. Not as loud as Gary Phillips, but loud, you know? <laughs> and she went by, and these guys, these three guys who worked there, Monica Lewinsky, Monica Lewinsky, Monica, you know, it's going on and on and on. And then Derek Walcott walked by, and Derek said hello, and they go, oh, hey, hey, Derek. You know, Monica Lewinsky, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you do realize that he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, right? <laughs> and they kind of went, oh. So she lives on the floor below Monica. And he went back, you know, to Monica. It was like, you know, I'm very interested in history. I studied political theory at college, UMass Amherst. I just think that the history is so wonderful because the only truly deconstructionist art, that's what I believe. We all want to know history. We all study history. We all live by history, but none of us understand it because it's impossible to understand because it's too big a subject. And this is the subject of John Woman. This is, yeah. right? John Woman is a novel about a young guy who's growing up in New York, 
named Cornelius, who I won't give too much away, but he ends up changing his entire name and life, and he becomes a man named John Woman, who is a professor of deconstructive history at the New College of the Southwest. Yeah. New University of the Southwest. The New University of the Southwest. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And, no, and, yeah. and he also does not believe in white people. Well, yeah, how can you? I mean, what is a white people? You know, I mean, it's like, was it Pesci, right? And that film where he goes, what is a grit? You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, there's grits, I guess, you know, but a grit, I'm a grit. Really, there's no such thing, like, you know, there's no such thing as white people. They don't come from the same place. They don't have the same religion. They don't speak the same language. They don't look the same. They're not the same color. They're not the same physical appearance. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, really, there's no black people either. I mean, honestly, you know, the whole notion that you can, I mean, really, what happened is America, there's many things, it's done evil. It invented race in that way because, you know, these people who were not white in Europe came here and said, well, we're killing the red people. And enslaving the black people, so we need a color, you know? <laughs> we'll be white people, you know? <laughs> and, you know, slowly over time, everybody became a white person. Irish people didn't used to be white, but they became white. Italians didn't used to be white, but they became white. Jews definitely weren't white, but they even became white, you know? <laughs> I got Jewish cousins, they tell me, I'm white. And I said, no, you fool, don't you know what happened? And they said, yeah, that was a long time ago. It's ridiculous. So John Woman has a. Let's John, get back to this. Uh, this is this know. is this is John Woman's theory of white people too, right? So yeah. I don't know where he got it. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I was writing. Yeah, I didn't tell. Him. <laughs> He's developing his own theory of history. Part of it he gets from his father. His father tells him there are four important pillars of understanding humankind and human history, and they are sex, money, technology. Well, sex and money, Derrida was onto already, right? We yeah, know. right. Sex, money, technology, and finally the shopping list. Yeah, yeah. The only thing in history that's real is the shopping list. <laughs> you know, you find that, you know, I mean, it could be a piece of papyrus or it could be a rock, you know, and it says, I need, you know, two ears of corn and a lathe, a stone lathe for sandstone, and then you can figure out what they're doing and where they're going according to what their needs are. Even then, you don't understand history, but you come the closest you possibly can to it. And the thing that's deconstructive about his method is partly that he believes that since those are the only facts, that is, the shopping list is the only facts, the little material clues we have to the way people actually lived are the only thing that we can hold on to in the historical realm. Everything else, he never uses the word ideology, but everything else is ideological. Everything else is somebody's desire to frame a narrative in a particular way. And in order to understand what actually happened in history, we have to deconstruct those stories to get to some... Well, we have to understand story. that everything is deconstructed. And the thing about John's father, John Woman is a sociopath. And I believe that the only way you can make it in today's world is to be a sociopath to one degree or another. Anybody who actually cares about the people next to them over themselves is going to end up losing in this world of capitalism. And John is very good about that. But his father was a genius about it. His father really, really understood one major thing. He says, we are black people. That's what he thought. And he said, we are black people. And they are the not black people. They have negated, they have stated, negated, erased our history and are trying to understand their own without understanding us. 
But if somebody's a big part of your history, you know, they raised your children, they built your houses, they took your music and turned it into something else, they altered your language, they altered everything, and then you pretend that they have nothing to do with history, then you've strangled yourself and your, any ability to attempt to understand yourself. I think that's what... It's what the book is about. The book is really about him understanding that he's a sociopath. But, I mean, that's his story. But there's this other story about history that goes along with it. It's a remarkable portrait of a sociopath, I think, because it, you don't actually get that that's who he is until fairly late in. And you kind of recast some things that happened earlier and realize, oh, okay, he was already a sociopath. But it's really very late that it gets revealed in a sense. Yeah, well, you know, it's like, you know, anybody in here who's been to therapy and they said, oh, I hate my mother. (laughs) I'm 64, I hate my mother. It's that kind of thing, right? That's what novels are about if they work. The most fun part of these nights for me is everybody that's here having their questions as well. So we'll move on to that soon, but a couple more before Mm -hmm. we do. Elements of Fiction is also one of your more recent books, one of the books on writing. I don't have a question. Tell us about elements of fiction. Now, you know, the thing that I want to get to is that you said something the other night which really stayed with me, which is somebody asked you, how do you know mm. when a book is done? And of course, you've made this decision many, many times, right? 50-something times. Yeah. An average of a couple times a year for the last 30 years, right? So your answer to that question was really interesting. I don't think it's in elements of fiction, is it? I don't know. Honestly, I don't remember. This is nice when you don't remember your books. Mm. It's like, God, I wrote that? Anyway, I'll tell the story. A person comes to me and they say, because writers, especially young writers, especially young male writers, are very serious. And like, when is it finished? You know, I keep working and I keep working. And you've got to go, well, you know, you write the first draft, then you read it and you see the mistakes and you fix them. And then you write this, you know, read it again and you see the mistakes and then you fix them. You do this 20 times. Maybe you do it 30 times. You go through the book, you see the mistakes, you fix them. You see the mistakes, you fix them. You don't necessarily fix all the mistakes. Maybe you fix one kind of mistake in a pass. And then you come back and fix another kind. Then you realize the first kind were wrong. And you just keep going back and forth. Finally, one day you read the book, you see the mistakes, and you realize you don't know how to fix them. (laughs) Your novel is finished, you know. You have to love Whitman, but you know, Whitman, you know, he just kept rewriting Leaves of Grass, you know. So you could have just written another book, you know. I mean, now I'm going to rewrite this book again and again. I actually used a quote from Whitman at the beginning of a book, and the editor completely changed the quote from Whitman's, you know, from Leaves of Grass. I was mad, but I called her and she said, well, here it is. And I said, well, which version is it? And it was one of the earlier versions, but in the later versions, it was a different, and I said, no, look in, you know, whatever it was, in the 16th version, whatever the, yet. and so, oh, yeah, I see, okay, and, you know, we put it back, but, you know, I think that the idea is you're working, and you're, I mean, you can be an artist, you could not be, but you can be an artist, and if you are, perfection is the last thing you're after, it's the last thing. And speaking of young male writers, you published your first book when you were 35-ish? 38 was my first book was published, yeah. So what were you doing? See, I'm in California. Usually I'm not, but I'm in California. So, like, I can tell you this, you know, in anywhere else, if there's, you know, a woman at, uh, you know, normal retirement age today, you know, so 80, uh, <laughs> she's, you know, she just quit her job. And you can ask what she's going to do, but you know, well, I'm going to spend time with my grandchildren. My husband doesn't get around as much, but we're going to have these trips. I have a garden. I have arthritis, whatever. 
But in California, the woman says, well, you know, I'm still able to touch my toes. And I've been considering the ballet. <laughs> and you think, you're an idiot, you know? But then a year later, her and her, you know, octogenarian ballet company is performing at the White House, you know? <laughs> it's like, you go, wow, this is so crazy, you know? These people, and so me, I was a computer programmer, I was a potter, I was a cook for a while, mostly computer programmer, but all these other things. And one day I wrote a sentence on hot, sticky days in southern Louisiana, the fire ants swarmed. I wrote that sentence. That sounds like a novel. I, I could write more sentences like that, you know. And I knew it was fiction because I'd never been to Louisiana and I'd never seen a fire ant. So I said, okay, yeah, cool. Maybe I'll be a fiction writer. And I tried. And I didn't want to, my idea wasn't that I was going to get published. You know, I, I never thought like that. But I did want to write a story from beginning to end. And then things happened. Hmm. I was a programmer from the age of like maybe 24 until 38, maybe a little bit longer even. And all that time, were you thinking, I'm a writer, my secret life is as a writer? No, I was just, I was going to write books, you know. It's mm -hmm. like that 80-year-old woman from Glendale. I, I'm thinking of the ballet. Mm -hmm. And you try to write, you know, and you try to write what you like. And, you know, it's not like what you want to say. It's, I mean, it is what you want to say, but you discover it. Roy Lichtenstein was a friend of mine long, long ago, and you know, Roy would say, he says, you know, the, the reason that many painters are not artists is because they know what the art is before they approach the canvas. And so the idea is you want to do the work, and the work, you know, after you finish with it, you're finished with it. It's either out in the world or it's not. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to Tom Letts' conversation with author Walter Mosley. I will uh, open up to the floor after this. Can you talk a little bit about working for TV and film as, and how that is the same or different than... I'm trying to look at my friend Gary over there. Hey, Gary. We're, we're in, Gary Phillips and I are in the same writer's room. We've also known each other for... 30 years, uh, and, um, you know, we, and we're, in this, we're in this room you know, called Snowfall. Now, it's a really nice thing, this, this Snowfall room. You know, we're in there, we're writing, we're, you know, we're doing, you know, writing these things you know, about, about people. We're arguing, 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 you know, and, and competing in a kind of funny way, and worried, all, all TV writers are worried they're going to get fired, and they shouldn't be because all of them are going to get fired sooner or later, you know. <laughs> and I, I'm there, and I, and I like it. You know, it's John Singleton's idea. John brought me into that room five years ago, and I think that it's, it's, a, a, it's a good thing. It, it's, it's worthwhile seeing. We, we're really good at it. The, they're really good at making it. The, the cinematography is wonderful. The actors, none of whom were known before the show started, are wonderful actors and really committed because this is the life, a new life that they've, they've discovered. You know, but I hate being in a writer's room. My God, it's terrible. Like, it's eight hours a day. You're sitting around. I think you imagine if you sat around a table eight hours every day and just talked about, you know, uh, why is Joe wearing brown pants? I mean, I don't give a fuck why Joe is wearing brown pants, you know? You know, and, and really, you know, and most people, nobody cares, but, you know, 
it, it so happens that I don't act, absolutely have to be in that room, so I could quit if I wanted, you know. And so I do say, you know, no, no, no. Gary says it because he, he he's a you know he's an activist, you know, and activists, you know, they're different, you know. But uh, but most people, you know, they're trying to you know be happy, you know, and even that upsets me, you know. Uh, and really, I, I, I will tell you, it's a it's a it's you know. I love everybody in the room. I think it's this great group of people, and I love the idea, and I love continuing what John Singleton was doing because I think he was such a, a wonderful, a great man, actually. But, you know, it's not like writing novels. You know, it's, it's not like saying, well, I'm going to say this. You know, one of the things that happens in a writer's room is I say, okay, now they're going to be on a cliff above the ocean, and that's the back of the house. And so the people are going to attack this house. But it's a house, you know, on a cliff above the ocean. And, and, and the, you know, the head writer looks at me very sensibly and he says, Walter, we can't afford that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think we're going to get a house? I mean, that would be like the whole season. <laughs> you know, for, for five minutes. Uh, so I can't have my house. No, you cannot. And, and most of the things, it's not, it's not like we're not creative. It's we're very creative. The thing is being creative on a budget, you know. It says, what do you, I want a pony. So, well, I'll get you a little, you know, pony. <laughs> and you can put it on your desk and pretend that it's running around, you know. Did, did that answer your question? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you find that, you know, for instance, just go back for a second to the, to the kind of philosophical underpinnings of your work, which I think I, I didn't quite finish talking about, but I, you know, mm -hmm. easy, easy as a philosopher, right? Um, Socrates is certainly. Socrates yeah, is, right. yeah. Yeah. Socrates Fortlow, yeah. He sounds like a philosopher. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's why his mother named him that. She thought it would help. Didn't, but she yeah. thought it would. <laughs> And of course, John Woman's a philosopher. Yeah. A lot, lot, there, are, there are philosophers in all in all books, right? Do you feel that you can um, entertain that the same level of um, thought about history and philosophy that you can in your in the novels and the TV shows? You know, they're not necessarily expensive. Yeah, thoughts aren't really expensive. They're just like you know, the other things things have to happen. I, I recently wrote a character had been in what she felt was a life and death situation. And it's over, and she's talking to somebody about it, and she said, "I realized that I'm I'm only worried about what might happen, what could happen, but once it happens, I don't have any choice. I'm just part of it. There's no fear involved. I think I think that's a big mm. it's a big philosophical mm -hmm. moment in, in the world we live in, especially if you listen to the yellow journalism of our newspapers. You know, I mean." It's like there's nothing that can happen that won't end up being a lie, you know, including the coronavirus. You know, I mean, this is like, you know, it's like I'm afraid that I might get sick. Once you're sick, I mean, you're sick, you know. I mean, you say, I got cancer, shit, I got cancer. I got to do this, I got to do that. You say, I might get cancer. You can worry forever about that, you know. I know my parents smoked when I was a child and I had secondhand smoke, you know. And I said, but, you know, that was 70 years ago. So, like... <laughs> That's probably not why you're going to get cancer, you know. Well, you know but you know, but that, but the, yeah. it, it's those notions. You can do little things like that. I don't think anybody sees them. I don't think it, people see that in most of my work. Here, you're talking about it, but I don't think that you know people think about it. When I wrote, wrote a book about a deconstructionist historian, it was so much fun. They said, "What's it about?" A deconstructionist historian. They said, "I don't know what any of those words mean." You know. All right. Shall we open it up?
Oh, we have a mic here that we can. There's one. Yeah, I have a question um, more remotely about uh, the word that you've used and has generated some controversy. <laughs> and I've used it in my own scholarship. And when I've used it, I've actually sometimes had picket signs and, pick, and students come up with picket signs to object to my use of the N-word, mm. which is kind of an abominable euphemism in itself. Yeah. But, but my use of the word in my scholarship as Richard Pryor and Dave Chappelle and many of the gangster rappers have used and there are a lot of other black artists have used, but they said that's a form of hate speech and have come after me. Uh-huh. Have some people come after you. And then, <laughs> you know, it's viewed as a kind of transgressive, unsayable word, but in the hands of people like you, wordsmiths like you, I think it can be not something that just cuts and lacerates, but can actually suture the places where blood flows. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that and, and how you responded to it? Uh, I, I just, I'll say two things about uh, using the word in uh, speech. Uh, you know, one was I, you know, I was in a writer's room, and not, not in Snowfall, but another one, and <laughs> and I was telling a story about was on Robertson Boulevard in LA. I was 16 years old. Policeman stopped me. He searches me. He questions me. He searches me. He questions me. He searches me. He questions me. Then he says, "You can go." And I said, "Well, excuse me, um, officer. I was high as you could be, but he couldn't tell." <laughs> I said, "Officer, excuse me, because if I wasn't high, I wouldn't have done this." But I, I said, "Officer, excuse me, but why did you stop me?" And he said, "Listen, whenever I see." An in a patty neighborhood, right? That's it. And I was thinking, Mick. If I ever see a in a patty neighborhood, uh, I stop him. And if I see a patty in a neighborhood, I stop him because they're usually up to no good. And I said, Well, okay, officer, thank you very much. And I went on my way. Next day, I got a call. I, I told the story in the writers' room. Next day, day, I got a call from a from HR, from a guy, and he said, uh, Excuse me, um, Mr. Mosley, uh, we hear that you uh, use the N-word uh, in the writer's room. And I said, well, you know, I am the N-word in the writer's room. <laughs> and he said, well, you can't use that word. And I said, why, why not? He said, well, you, can, you can't say it, but you can write it in the script. But, you know, this was like Star Trek, you know. I mean, so, so what, uh, uh, you know, Vulcan is going to come up to a Romulan and say, hey, go what up? You know, I mean, like, like, how do I get to do it? This is a long time ago on, in the 20th century. They used the word and I, it's really funny. But, but, okay, so, you know, so that's what happened. And I quit. I mean, listen, that was a good thing. I had enough money, you know, I'm old. Not, a, you know, not as old as Gary, but, you know, I'm old. And... Um, and so I said, I, you know, I don't, I don't have to be, be in the room. And because they didn't try to make a deal with me, because, you know, I could have, you know, signed some papers and said, you know, NDA, blah, 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 they'll pay me for the season. They didn't offer that, which I was very good, because I like money. And so I could say whatever the fuck I wanted to say, you know, like any American, you know, there's, there's two things that, that they offer you in America, freedom of speech and the right to pursue happiness. But then they've took it, taken it here. It says, if you use your freedom of speech, we're going to take away your right to pursue happiness. <laughs> right? And if you keep your right to pursue happiness, you know, you're going to lose it anyway. 
But, but it reminds me of a story. I'm standing on a corner uh, 15, 20 years ago in the West Village, and there was a young white man standing on the corner in the West Village. It's very, very much a gay center at that moment. He's handing out, come to the gay rave, come to the gay rave, come to the gay rave. And he's happy, and he's passing this thing out, and he's a beautiful young man. People are taking him, you know, and this young black man, same age, is watching. And he's watching, and he's watching, and he's watching. And finally, he grabs one of the things, and he starts to read it, you know. He's really reading it. And when there was nobody there for the young white man to give pamphlets, the young black man says, hey, 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 Matt, tell me something. And the white guy goes, Yes. What, what, what? And he goes, any bitches up in here? <laughs> and the white guy grins, looks at him and says, no, man. Just us <laughs> <laughs> And the black guy said, all right. You know, they knew what they were talking about. I didn't know what they were talking about, but they knew what they were talking about. You know, and that's what speech is about, right? Speech is about talking, communicating, making somebody mad. If somebody white comes up to me, my so-called white white comes up to me and says, I'm going to be mad. But I'm not going to say he didn't have the right to say it. I'm going to be mad for another reason and say, well, I didn't have the right to hit you upside the head, and, you know, but you did have the right to make me mad enough to do that thing. You know? And I think that, that that's a fact. It's made a lot of white people mad. It's made a lot of black people mad. You know? And it's, it's okay because, you know, we have freedom of speech. And because we have freedom of speech, we can exercise that freedom of speech. And if a word can destroy us, then we're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of my favorite stories to teach is That Evening Sun by William Faulkner, mm-hmm. where he says, um, <laughs> I have cocaine is no longer <laughs> and, uh, Because the woman's trying to hang herself because Tom Deacon, she's been having sex with, and he won't pay her. And he beats her, and then she tries to commit suicide. So that's when that line comes up from the jailer. So how are you supposed to teach that story if you can't use the word nigger? I mean, it's a great American short story. No, no, listen. I, I don't think that there's any moment where any, like, like you know, because they have all these new words, like, you know, trigger, whatever, you know, which is kind of rhyming with which I love. So that poem, <laughs> that poem needs to be written, you know. Uh, you know. It's like, <laughs> he had a trigger. They said it was, you know. <laughs> I remember Moms Mabley was on the Merv Griffin show when I was an infant. And, um, and she said, I was down in Texas and it was so beautiful. They all loved me. They all called me after Roy Rogers' heart, say trigger. <laughs> and then she stopped and she went, I think that's what they said. <laughs> and poor Merv Griffin, he's like, oh my God. I'm never having this woman on my show again, but it was okay. You know, she had done what she needed to do. No, I, but no, listen, I think it's a, it's a really difficult world that we live in. You know, when somebody, not only do you want to fix the world you live in, but you want to reconstruct the past that you come from. Very often in, in our room, we're having these conversations about... <laughs> We're, you know, we're like, you know, having, having this conversation says, well, you know, this is a woman who, you know, who needs agency, who's in charge, who's doing this, that. And I'm saying, fine, okay, that's good. But you're talking about 1984. And if you're going to talk about 1984, you have to talk about 1984 as it happened, not as you think it should happen, you know. And, and, and that's true about everything, you know. And, you know, anything else? Notions, ideas? Yeah.
Um, can you talk a little bit about, I was thinking when you were saying going into the, to the bookstore and, and where are your books shelved? Mm -hmm. As you're approaching a project or you have an idea or whatever, are you are you jumping around in your mind from this is this is an easy Rollins kind of story and this is a Socrates? I, I, I mean, the movement is fascinating to me mm -hmm. from one particular type of storytelling to another, and I wonder if you are purposely saying, you know, when I sit down today, I'm going to write about fiction, but tomorrow I'm going to write a novel, or are you doing them simultaneously? I'm interested in the process. Well, you know, I, I only write on one thing at a time, but that's one thing. I only write on one thing at a time, and I write every day. And, and when I say every day, I mean exactly that. Okay, so I'm writing a novel. Let's say it's an easy Rollins novel. I'm writing, I'm writing, writing, and I finally get to the end, and I send it to my editor on Tuesday. So on Wednesday, I have to start a new book. <laughs> It can't be that book, so, you know, now I'm writing, uh, let's say, Socrates. And, you know, I'm working on this Socrates thing, and I'm, I'm working on it, and I get about halfway through, and, and I get the ba book back from the publisher, the Easy Rollins, and they have notes. And so I have to address the notes, because, you know, otherwise they don't pay me. So I, like, address all the notes, and I send that back, and I go back to the, you know, the Socrates, and I finish that. And then there's this nonfiction thing that I want to write, you know, let's say, about writing fiction. And so I start writing that, you know. But then the other two books at different times come back, and I have to stop and work on them and, and get them out and then get back to the book I'm working on. That process goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And, yeah, but I'm only working on one thing at a time. I'm still, you know, it, it seems as if, it's if you were like juggling in really slow motion, like, whoa, yeah. You know, like Timothy Leary would be, you know, juggling, you know. Yes? Oh, so when you're in the room, are you writing also? Is the room your day job and you're writing your own when? I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and I write until, you know, like maybe 8 o'clock or, you know, 8, let's say. And then, and then I, you know, try to do some exercising, you know, which I fail often at doing it, but I try. And then I get to work at 10.30 and, I, and I'm in the writer's room, you know, and I, I work in the writer's room until the end of the day. Uh, and we talk, we mostly talk, and every once in a while I have a script to write. So I write that script, so that takes up my, you know, four to seven or eight o'clock. Uh, but, you know, that's a shorter thing, because, you know, the room is... Somebody, one day went, somebody came up to me and they said, uh, you, know, cause, you know, what you do in a writer's room, our writer's room anyway, I don't know about other people's, but we, we you know, we, we have a thing. There's a teaser, there's a first act, a second act, a third act, a fourth act. And we write, this is what happens in the, first, the teaser, and this is what happens in the first act, and this is what, you know, and we write it all down, and then we argue about it and go back and forth and go back and forth, and then somebody writes an outline, and then we put it back up, and then we you know, outline, and then, you know, and finally, you know, somebody says, okay, go write the script. One, one day, I got the script. They said, go write the script. I said, okay. And, and a woman, very nice woman, she asked me, she said, aren't you happy about the script? I said, what are you talking about? We already wrote it on the goddamn board. I mean, I'm just going to copy it down on a piece of paper and, and turn it back in, you know? I mean, it's like, it's not that, you know, it's not that difficult, but but you know, but but that's the thing, right? Like, I do it. You know, I, I write. You know, the the story when it's time to write the story, um, and I write every morning for three hours because that's my best time. Yes. You mentioned Langston Hughes. Mm -hmm. What are the other writers that you think of as necessary to your work? 
Well, you know, it's such a wonderful question. Not because of actually the way you're asking it, but it's a wonderful question. I mean, for me, I know for you it's, it's wonderful, and I, I get it. I'm not trying to take it away from you. But for me, you know, because it, you know, people come to you and they ask you, they say, who has influenced you? And the thing I love about that question, if, I don't know how much you people go and listen to writers, but you should always ask writers who influenced them. And think, remember this, they always lie. <laughs> always lie. Like, they just, they just lie, lie, you know, young black woman. Well, there was Phyllis Wheatley, because she knows you don't know who that is. And then, <laughs> And then she says, and then there's Zora Neale Hurston, because she knows you do know who that is. And then there's Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, there's uh, Edwige Dantica, there's, there's, you know, there's all of these writers, you know, down to somebody who's only 20. The reason she's telling you about them is not because they influenced her, it's because they, she wants you to think of her the way you think of them. And I'm using a woman as an example, but a man as an example just as well. But the truth is, when that writer was a young girl, the, the biggest influence on her was Nancy Drew, right? It was Nancy Drew. It wasn't even who wrote Nancy Drew. Who wrote Nancy Drew? I don't know. You know? But, but it was Nancy Drew. And, and even though it's a young black girl, Nancy Drew was another black girl across the street who was in this house that she always wanted to be in. If you were an eight-year-old girl and you read Beloved, you would kill either yourself or your mother. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's the truth. I mean, it's a, Mom, I read this book and I don't like it <laughs> at all, you know? When you're a kid, when I was a kid, it was uh, Jack Kirby in Marvel Comics. Jack Kirby was the genius. I, I could just sit there and look at his picture. I didn't have to read it. I did read them, but I didn't have to, you know? I, just, I would just look at it and go, wow, that is so fantastic. That is so great because he was speaking to me about something. Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man is, is a black hero, right? I mean, you never see him. You never see his skin because he's completely covered from head to toe. You know, he's, uh, he, he lives in a single parent home. Uh, he, 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 the, he can't hardly keep a job. He's late to everything. <laughs> he can't keep a girlfriend. His way he makes money is to take pictures of himself committing crimes because that's what the newspaper wants to publish. Like, I'm like, I'm reading that. That's, I'm, that, I'm learning something from that. You know, and, and so, I mean, later on, you know, I'm reading Marquez, I'm reading Camus, I'm reading Richard Wright, I'm reading, I'm reading all kinds of, like, you know, wonderful, like, uh, writers who, but I've already gotten up to being able to understand them by the time I'm reading them. Comic books actually taught me something. And, you know, in other books, you know, the, the Treasure Island, and, you know, there's a lot of things that I read when I was a kid. But, you know, the idea that, that, Great writing is what informs us. It's not true. It's, 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 it's anything that tickles your imagination. Peter Pan, Winnie the Pooh, you know, that kind of stuff where you're reading it and it's real. I mean, you remember, right? You're a kid, you're reading it. It's real. You, you can't stop reading it. You can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop dreaming about it. You know, that's not true about Beloved, really. It, Beloved breaks your heart. It does. But, you know... You're an adult. You know how to deal with a broken heart. Children don't. Their heart gets broken, and like, what? How do they survive? You know. Anything else? Yeah. You talked about when you started writing your first whatever that was that you saw or heard or wrote a, a sentence. Mm-hmm. How over time the relationship between language and 
ideas, like when you start something, whether you're writing from language or ideas or a mix or how that relationship has evolved and works. Does that make any sense? It does, and it's such a hard question to answer. You know, like the, the I had a, a meeting the other day with Gina Torres, who I adore, you know, and she's a wonderful actor, and... Um, and she's, you know, looking to do other things. And she was, you know, she wanted to talk to me about Debbie doesn't do it anymore. And she asked me that question, you know, how did you come up with, what would you think about where you were going? And I went, I was having, but I was having a talk with a friend about pornography, very unusual conversation for me, but I was having a talk about pornography. And, and I said to my friend, I said, well, you know, uh, Debbie doesn't do it anymore. And I stopped and went, wow, that's a, that's great. <laughs> Debbie doesn't do it anymore. I got, I got to write that, you know? And then, like, you know. and then I just started writing. I thought it was going to be a comedy. I thought it was going to be funny because it felt funny, but it's not. You know, it turned out to be you know, a very, very serious book about you know, a black woman's identity. The only novel I've ever written about a woman, uh, a black woman's identity uh, in, a, in a world that, you know, that she's mastered and that that world hates her for having mastered it. Yeah. You know, and I, but I discovered that while writing. You know. And in, in the mystery genre, are you more aware of what needs to happen and more? Nah, not really. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to write the plot in a mystery, right? And, and really, when I finished uh, uh, Trouble is What I Do, uh, I, I read it. I, I, no, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. Not, it's not that. I, fin- I just finished an Easy Rollins novel, uh, Blood Grove. And I wrote the whole book. And I realized the plot didn't work. <laughs> I'm looking at you. Right, Gary? I mean, Whoops. that's where you go, right? You know, it's like the plot didn't work. Okay, so I got to fix the plot, but I got to keep the novel. It's a very difficult thing to do. But, but, I, but I'd rather do that than have the, the, the plot predict the novel, which a lot happens in, in, in television and in movie writing, because you, know, you, know, you, you have to follow plot very closely. Just one last thing, well, kind of uh, piggybacking on that. When you said that sentence that, that you wrote mm-hmm. at 38, 37, whatever, it, it struck me that there was poetry mm-hmm. to it, and, and I see that a lot in your work. Mm. I'm wondering Thank how you. much, if at all, um, the music of poetry influences, particularly in the quote-unquote crime, I know they're not all crime, everybody says they are, the novels, how much that influences your language. Well, there's an answer to a question somewhere in between the words that you're saying. When I studied writing, I went to City College, and, you know, I, I, I had a, a mentor, Frederick Tutton, who's a, you know, a fiction writer. Um, but, I, the, but the person that I studied with every semester for the two and a half years I was there was William Matthews, a great American poet, great American poet. And I, stu- and I can't write a poem to save my life, but I loved, just I loved what Bill was teaching because he taught about music, he taught about condensation, he taught about metaphor versus simile, he, he, he taught about choosing just the right word. You only need two words, because you use two words, it's, it's half of what it could have been. You know, he, he teaches, he teaches what well, you're saying, music, you know, the music inside the language, and, 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 and he's also, you know, 
talking about assonance, uh, rhyme, uh, 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 alliteration, all of the all of the things that any writer needs to know, and most writers don't know, because most writers say, "I'm, I'm not interested in poetry because you can't make money doing it." And I say, "Well, you never heard of a songwriter, then, did you?" I mean, you know, so so that becomes the thing I, that 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 if you don't know poetry, then you don't know how to write. I mean, that, and that's just the fact. Now you might know it. You might know it naturally. I really studied it. I was really bad, too. But those poems are so bad. I don't even want to think of them. They're so bad. But what I learned when I start to, to write, you know, then you, you say, well, how does that sentence work? One of the things that I do when I, when I work on a novel, almost every time I work on a novel, I read it out loud into a tape recorder, the whole thing. Because then you can hear all those awkward sentences, the sentences that are not quite long enough or way too long, um, uh, the words that get repeated, but you don't want them repeated, all of that stuff, yeah. Walter, thank you so much for this. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 